Hi, this is Jason Smith. Just a quick heads up that I'll be taking an extra week off between this episode and the next. So instead of the regular two-week schedule, this time I'll be back in three with a new episode on April 28th, 2022. And let me also just take a moment to say how much I appreciate the feedback and encouraging comments that I've received from many of you. I'm grateful for that support and encouragement, and I look forward to continuing to bring Digital Jung to you through the rest of this season and beyond. Thanks for listening, and take good care. Welcome to Digital Jung, a podcast about living a symbolic life in a technological age. Man cannot stand a meaningless life. I'm Jason Smith, Jungian analyst and author of Religious But Not Religious, Living a Symbolic Life. And in this episode, we discuss those times in the symbolic life that call on us to bring tolerance, kindness, and patience to ourselves. It's the human soul. That's the buried treasure. Perhaps this sounds very simple, but simple things are always the most difficult. In actual life, it requires the greatest art to be simple. And so acceptance of oneself is the essence of the moral problem and the acid test of one's whole outlook on life. That I feed the beggar, that I forgive an insult, that I love my enemy in the name of Christ, all these are undoubtedly great virtues. What I do unto the least of my brethren, that I do unto Christ. But what if I should discover that the least among them all, the poorest of all beggars, the most impudent of all offenders, yea, the very fiend himself, that these are within me, and that I myself stand in need of the alms of my own kindness, that I myself am the enemy who must be loved. What then? It's very hard these days to find an honest discussion about the full reality of what it means to live a human life. We are awash in so much aspirational fluff, encouraging us to be our best selves, become high achievers or productivity masters, and to win the day 
every day. Of course, there's nothing wrong with being productive or with striving for achievement. But when countless books and websites promise us a secret key that will unlock the power of our will so that we can have or do whatever we set our minds to, the conditions are set up for a precipitous fall. Because the truth is, being human is messy. And a lot of the time it can feel like we are constantly fumbling around, making mistake after mistake, while we imagine that everyone else has somehow got it all figured out. That's why we're so susceptible to the promise of the magic formula for success. And yet, despite our best intentions, our disciplined efforts, and whatever progress we may make in the difficult work of psychological and spiritual growth, we will always, at least part of the time, have to contend with things like our own weakness, laziness, stupidity, self-doubt, lack of direction, and failure. Or, to put it another way, perfection is not a human possibility, and we should be wary of anything that lays that expectation on our shoulders, most particularly when it is we ourselves who do it. For Jung, the counterpart to the quest for perfection is the embrace of our wholeness. And it's just this that he's getting at when he says in our opening quote, in actual life, it requires the greatest art to be simple. And so acceptance of oneself is the essence of the moral problem and the acid test of one's whole outlook on life. Now, there's a lot to unpack in all this, so I'd like in what follows to see if we can come to a deeper understanding of what Jung is saying here and what it might mean for us in the living of our own lives. There's a quote attributed to Jung that's popular on the internet, and it goes like this, I am not what happened to me. I am what I choose to become. Now, personally, I've never come across this statement in any of my reading of Jung, and I've never been able to track down its source. It may, in fact, be a real quote of his, though I have serious doubts about that. But even if it is, it is, at best, only half the truth. There's another statement of Jung's, this one unquestionably real and verifiable, in which he says something quite different from what's been attributed to him. It is not I who create myself, he writes. Rather, I happen to myself. You see, the crux of Jung's psychology is that our conscious mind is not the primary actor in our psychological lives. 
We are affected by the activity of the unconscious much more than we suspect. The conviction the will can achieve anything, Jung once said, is merely a superstition of the ego. We want to see ourselves as having supernatural powers. We think we've got unlimited freedom. But there's no question of that. And what this means is that we are subject to a multitude of experiences, both within us and outside of us, that we don't choose, that we don't create, and often enough, that we don't like. It means we have to come to terms with the parts of ourselves that are not quite put together, that don't align with our preferred self-image, and that don't cooperate with our plans and desires. Jung himself was a man possessed of the kind of temperament that is often dismissed and disparaged in others as being too sensitive. His sensitivity, according to his close associate, Aniela Jaffe, was to him both a benefit and a difficulty. On the one hand, it apparently burdened him with feelings of deep insecurity, of which he felt ashamed. While on the other it enabled him, in Yaffe's words, to perceive beauties and experience things that other people scarcely dreamed of. In one of his letters, Jung writes of the kinds of struggles he endured. He says, I have attacks of feeling horribly inferior. I have to digest a whole span of life full of mistakes and stupidity. Anyway, feelings of inferiority are the counterparts of power. Wanting to be better or more intelligent than one is, is power too. It's difficult enough to be what one is and yet endure oneself, and for once, forgive one's own sins with Christian charity. That is damnably difficult. In this we hear an echo of Jung's statement in that opening quote, that we ourselves stand in need of the alms of our own kindness. The effect of this statement, informed as it seems to be by his own personal experience, is to take the notion of Christian charity, the common understanding of which he sees as shallow or, at the very least, incomplete, and broaden it to give it a psychological depth and meaning in addition to its concrete behavioral interpretation. Charity is a word that has lost much of its resonance for us today. It has come to refer to donations given to the needy and the organizations that collect those donations. And if our understanding of charity extends beyond that, it might mean kindness and tolerance towards others. 
But in the context of the larger Christian tradition, charity holds a central place as one of the three main theological virtues, faith, hope, and charity. And in this sense, according to Thomas Aquinas, it is understood as that which unites us with God. To have charity means to love God above all else. And this love, when it's extended to the world and to our neighbor, therefore implies that one loves God in and through them. And if we take this further, as Jung suggests, to include ourselves in the embrace of charity, it would then mean loving and accepting our own God-given nature. And this last point, translated into psychological terms, means a full acceptance of our true and unique individuality. And it's important to be clear here that acceptance is not the same as indulgence. To accept our individuality does not mean overlooking our faults or our bad behavior. It doesn't mean never bringing a critical eye to our thoughts or actions. And it certainly doesn't mean some gratification of our vanity. What it actually means is humility. It is a humble and generous embrace of ourselves as we are, and not necessarily as we wish we were. And this means the conscious awareness of our true self, our whole self, and not just the partial ideal that we have set up in our minds. Our true self, our individuality, extends beyond those things that we tend to identify with our ego, that part to which we give the name I. Some of these aspects of our individuality can feel very problematic for us. For example, I've worked with many introverted people who have found that part of their psychological being to be an experience of real suffering. They struggled with their introversion and, and could not accept it as a natural part of themselves. For these individuals, introversion made life difficult, it made social events awkward and painful, and it made them feel different and separate from the rest of the world. Now, introversion is a personality trait that is fairly stable across one's lifetime. It's an inherent part of one's being. In essence, there is really no choice but to come to terms with it. Still, for these people, the work of coming to terms with their introversion, if they were able to do it at all, was anything but an easy and automatic process. And this is what we're often up against when we speak of the acceptance of our true selves. It's important to understand, this is not a shallow admonition to love oneself, but rather a call to be willing to tolerate and even welcome those things in us that are difficult, awkward, and painful, 
those things that can make us feel separate and different. Holding all these parts of ourselves might feel like being asked to carry a heavy load. And in one sense, this is definitely true. In Christian language, this would be the carrying of one's cross, right? But in another sense, looked at from a different angle, it is simultaneously a setting down of our burdens. My yoke is easy, and my burden is light, says Jesus. Cast your burden upon the Lord, says the psalmist. And psychologically, this refers to a shifting of emphasis from the ego to the self, from our narrow sense of identity to the ordering and unifying center of the whole psyche. On the one hand, this can be experienced as a deflation of the ego personality, while on the other, it's an influx of meaning and aliveness, a sense of being grounded in a wider experience of life. The Jungian analyst Edward Edinger articulates the dual nature of this experience when he writes, Authentic being occurs when we live and speak out of our unified and unique individuality. Of course, this is easy to say in words, but exceedingly hard to live out in reality. There's a similar set of ideas in the Buddhist tradition, though they're expressed in a very different symbolic form. So here I'm going to present a parable called the hawk, as told by the Buddha in what is known as the Sakunagi Sutta. And it goes like this. Once, in the distant past, a hawk suddenly swooped down and seized a quail. As the quail was being carried away by the hawk, it lamented, How unfortunate I am! What little merit I possess to have wandered out of my natural habitat into a foreign domain! If I had wandered within my native domain today, within my own ancestral natural habitat, this hawk would certainly not have been a match for me in battle. What is your native domain, quail? What is your own ancestral natural habitat? asked the hawk. The quail answered, That clod of earth, freshly tilled with a plow. Then the hawk, not boasting about its own strength, not mentioning its own strength, released the quail, saying, Go, quail. But having gone there, you cannot escape me. Then the quail, having gone to the clod of earth, freshly tilled with a plow, climbed onto the large clod of earth, and standing there, said to the hawk, Come get me now, hawk, come get me now. Now the hawk, not boasting about its own strength, not mentioning 
its own strength, folded up its wings, and suddenly swooped down on the quail. When the quail fully realized that the hawk was coming, it got inside that clod of earth, and the hawk, striking against it, suffered a blow to its chest. So it is when someone wanders out of his or her natural habitat into a foreign domain. Therefore, do not wander out of your natural habitat into a foreign domain. Death will gain access to the person who has wandered out of his or her natural habitat into a foreign domain. Death will gain a footing. The Buddha goes on to explain that a foreign domain is that which stirs up our desiring and grasping nature. It's where we end up when we are seeking what is, as the text puts it, pleasing, desirable, charming, agreeable, arousing desire, and enticing. Our native domain, or natural habitat, is what the Buddha calls present moment awareness, which is characterized by being ardent, fully aware and mindful, and having put down longing and discontentment toward the world. Present moment awareness, we could say, is an acceptance of what is, and it stands in contrast to longing and discontent, that is, wishing for things including ourselves, to be other than what they are. The parable of the hawk and the quail illustrates perfectly the statement that Jung makes in the letter I quoted earlier. Feelings of inferiority are the counterparts of power. Wanting to be better or more intelligent than one is, is power too. When we want to be other, than we are, better or more intelligent, or even happier and more productive. We have wandered into a foreign domain. We are not living out of our actual present moment experience of ourselves, but are caught up in the desire of a false self. If we don't have at least some sense of our wholeness, imperfect as it may be. We run the risk of identifying our being and our worth with some partial aspect of ourselves. The part with which we have identified may be a valuable aspect of our personality or even a very great talent, but regardless, it is still just a part. And this state of being actually leaves us quite vulnerable to feelings of inferiority, as Edinger explains in his book, Ego and Archetype. He writes this, If a person feels inferior and depressed in the presence of people who are more intelligent, who have read more books, who have traveled more, who are more famous, or who are more skillful or knowledgeable in art, music, politics, or any other human endeavor, 
then that person is making the mistake of identifying some particular aspect or function of themselves with their essential individuality. Because a particular capacity is inferior to that of another person, one feels oneself to be inferior. This feeling then leads either to depressive withdrawal or to defensive competitive efforts to prove one is not inferior. Our desire to be other than we are, as Jung suggests, is a desire for power. Power over ourselves, over our unconscious, and over the realities of our life. We can be so captivated by our superstitious belief in progress and the power of the will that we develop an expectation that life should be something like a continuous process of growth and mastery, a steady climb up the hill of perfection. But of course we know that that is not how human life works. Hills do not exist without valleys, just as day does not exist without night. And like the quail who has wandered into the domain of the hawk, we soon discover that the counterpart of power is inferiority. And the way out of the danger, according to the image of our parable, is to find our own clod of earth. That is, to ground ourselves simply and humbly in the truth of our own being, to accept ourselves as we are. This doesn't involve some heroic act of self-mastery, but is rather something akin to the patient work of plowing the little plot of land that is our essential individuality our true self. It's a work of humility. And that is the key takeaway here. Humility, of course, is not the same as inferiority, but neither is it simply a rejection of power. Humility is a recognition that life follows a rhythm of expansion and contraction, and that that rhythm lives in us, too. Humility celebrates the highs and accepts the lows and tries to remember that they come and go in their own time. Humility understands that we are more than we know and it holds room for all of who we are, the strong and the weak, the kind and the careless the pulled together, and the falling apart. All of this, as we've already heard, is easy to say in words, but exceedingly hard to live out in reality. No doubt we will keep wandering away from the natural habitat of our individuality, and getting lost in that foreign domain of the false self. And when that happens, 
perhaps the best that we can do is to offer ourselves a little charity and then turn back to seek once again our little clod of earth. Until next time. You'll find information in the show notes for all the sources used in this week's episode, as well as links to connect with me on social media. Let's make this a conversation. If you have any comments or questions about anything you heard in this episode, or that you'd like me to address in a future episode, send them to me on Facebook or Twitter. And finally, if you want a deeper dive into the kind of material explored on this podcast, please check out my book, Religious But Not Religious, Living a Symbolic Life, available from Chiron Publications. Thanks for listening, and take good care.